Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. There's never a good time for murder, of course, but there certainly are times that seem worse than others. During youth, for example, or at Christmas time, or on the eve of one's wedding. In the case of Julielma Sands, all three of those boxes were ticked, and that's among the many reasons her death still resonates after 220 years. To fully grasp just how old this case is, here's a tidbit. Alexander Hamilton was one of the lawyers representing the man accused in her murder. And to fully grasp its historic nature, here's another. Hamilton's co-counsel included Aaron Burr, the man who would, just a few years later, shoot him dead in a duel. Not only that, but this is also the first recorded homicide trial in American history. On the eve of 1800, a city dressed in black The morning of their fathers, the great general that passed Catherine and Eli's ring Ran a boarding house on Greenwich Street In the care of their cousin, Elma Sane Before I start, a note about the name Some newspapers in 1800, when this story dominated the headlines, called the victim Juliana, some called her Julian, and still others used the name I used above, Julielma, which is the name used in the trial transcript and also one I found on birth records. Once upon a time, it was a pretty common name among English and American Quakers. But back to the tale. Julielma Sands, called Elma by her friends, was the daughter of a Quaker preacher who had died in England when she was young. Her mother stayed single after being widowed and apparently aged pretty poorly. By the time Julielma was 22 years old, her mother was infirm. Because of that, Elma lived with a married couple described in court documents as distant relatives. In some accounts, this has been translated to mean her aunt and uncle, and others to mean her cousins. Regardless, what's known is that the couple was Catherine and Elias Ring, and they seem to have been a pretty enterprising pair. In 1798, Elias had applied for a patent on his reworked design for a water wheel. He and his wife together ran a boarding house on Greenwich Street in Manhattan that was home to several disparate people. Catherine's sister Hope Sands lived there, as did several workers of no relation. Those men would eat their meals as guests and sleep in their rented rooms, and then spend their days toiling away at their labor-intensive jobs. In 1799, one of the young men had developed a bit of a side interest. 
Levi Weeks was a house carpenter and made no secret about his interest in Elma Sands. He was unrepentantly smitten. It became gossip fodder in the house, and some boarders had been suspected of sneaking up on the rooms where the young couple met to press an ear to the door and eavesdrop. Elma returned the infatuation. She seemed head over heels. Her situation was a bit unique in that she didn't have parents to introduce to her beau, but she did have Catherine and Elias. They didn't seem elated that one of their boarders was courting the girl, but they also didn't seem to toss any roadblocks in the way either. Still, there's enough distance between them that when Elma had a secret to share in early December 1799, she didn't tell Catherine, but she did tell Catherine's sister, Hope, and she made Hope promise not to tell anyone else. The secret was that Alma and Levi were stealing away on December 22nd to be secretly married. Now, this wasn't a shock to Hope, who excitedly talked to Alma about the upcoming wedding time and again as the month wore on. But it seems Hope didn't like keeping a secret from her sister. So on December 21st, the day before the planned nuptials, she told Catherine. The next night, as Alma ate dinner with the family, Catherine gently confronted her. Elma confessed, yes, we're going to be married. And Catherine, in today's terms, said, come on, don't elope, have a proper wedding. Elma said Levi wouldn't agree to that because he wanted to keep his marriage a secret from everyone. If Elma had hesitated telling Catherine her secret because she worried Catherine might stand in the way, she shouldn't have. That night, Catherine even helped her to get dressed in the clothing she planned to marry in. It would be cold that night, and Elma didn't have a muff. That's one of those hand-warming accessories you see in the sepia-tone pictures of fancy ladies. So she borrowed a neighbor's and promised to return it. Catherine later saw Levi come for Elma. She walked away, then soon heard rustling in the house that sounded like Elma and Levi whispering together. And then she heard the front door open and close, so she assumed the two were off to wed. When Elma didn't return home that night, she didn't worry. Sometimes the young woman would stay with a friend across town, so not coming home wasn't terribly unusual. It did seem a little odd that Levi had come back and stayed in his room. I mean, wouldn't two newlyweds want to spend their first married night together? But she pushed that aside. Come midday, Elma was still missing. Come midnight, still no word. Finally, Elma's relatives got nervous. Levi said he had no idea where she was. In fact, the night they supposedly were to be married, he had come home rather winded and disheveled around 10 p.m. and asked if anyone had seen her. He was confused when asked about the marriage plans Elma had shared with Catherine and Hope. He said that was news to him. He didn't leave with Alma earlier in the night, he said, and they certainly hadn't been married. His story is that they had an argument. Lance Geiger goes by the title The History Guy on YouTube, where he posts short videos covering forgotten historical events. He examined this case for his 860,000 subscribers a while back. After And so that he went, you know, a different direction. And when he came back, he wondered, you know, why she was out, because he was surprised she would have got out on her own. Levi had lived at the boarding house since July. According to Catherine, he at first was interested in a young woman there named Margaret Clark, but Margaret ended up leaving in August. After that, his attention shifted to Alma. Levi had been born the same year the nation was, 
and he worked for one of his brothers, a guy named Ezra Weeks, who was pretty well off. The two were among 11 siblings that their parents had, though only 10 lived past infancy. When they became adults, they also became business partners. Ezra's role was overseeing construction projects, which Levi would work on. They were basically two halves of the enterprise. Ezra the brains, Levi the brawn, and Ezra, as the owner, made good money. When police came around to ask about Elma's disappearance, Ezra and Levi said Levi had been at his brother's house, going over building plans for the following day. He did that every night, Ezra said. Even if he showed up at Ezra's house and Ezra was busy with company, Levi would come back before bed and make sure he was ready for the next morning. The night Elma disappeared, Ezra said his brother had visited as usual, though Ezra had been tied up at first. Levi left, he said, and then he came back. According to Ezra, Levi wasn't gone more than 15 minutes. Elias Ring, Catherine's husband, was so suspicious of Levi that he didn't find Ezra's alibi exonerating. He definitely knew Ezra and Levi, which could have played a role in the distrust. New York City Council minutes from December 2nd, 1799, show that the three men were among a group of 20 recruited to become firemen at the state prison, charged with quelling any insurrections that might arise. Whatever the reason, Elias figured that if Levi had left home for less than 15 minutes, it must mean Alma died very close to home. He directed that docks near his home be dragged. As he later testified, quote, I looked in the nearest dock because I heard that Ezra Weeks had declared that his brother had not been absent above 15 minutes, and therefore I supposed her drowned. He dredged a portion of the Hudson River to no avail. Then Christmas came and went, then New Year's. The colonies were abuzz that day because on January 1st, a procession was planned in honor of former President George Washington, who had died in mid-December. A missing woman in Manhattan was hardly a priority. But soon, a gruesome discovery would ensure that everyone in the country knew the name Alma Sands. On January 2nd, 11 days after Alma Sands disappeared, someone pieced together a few important clues. A week earlier, a couple of boys had been tromping through a meadow when they spotted something floating in a well. They found her muff at the Manhattan well that the the murder has taken the name of, which was in Lispinard Meadow. This is Josh Geiger, who led the research on the Alma Sands episode for his dad, the history guy. The boys had taken the muff home, and at long last, someone recognized it as the one Elma borrowed. The boys led authorities to the stone well, which was probed. With horror, they found Elma's dead body at the bottom of the well. Her clothes were ripped, her body bruised, and her neck appeared to be broken. Forensics were comparatively rudimentary 220 years ago, so it's hard to say now whether the injuries to Elma happened before or after her death. There certainly weren't photographs documenting it. The body had been in the well so long, uh, and then it was taken out and displayed on the street literally for a long time, uh, that the, the forensic evidence was very sketchy. A coroner's inquest led to an autopsy, in part to learn if Elma was pregnant. She wasn't. And initially, the coroner ruled this a murder. Now, some other details came to light as well. 
Between 8 and 9 p.m., the night Alma disappeared, several men in horse-drawn sleighs said they spotted a single sleigh tearing through the meadow near the well. This was nearly 90 years before the modern car was invented, so horse-drawn sleighs were the mode of transport then. This particular sleigh stood out because its horse was in a straight-up gallop and because it wasn't sporting bells. And back then, bells on a sleigh were a must, especially at night. Thomas Edison didn't invent a reliable electric light bulb until 1879. New York in late December was pretty dark by 8 p.m., and those bells helped keep speeding horses from colliding. The people who had passed the sleigh in question noticed its horse was dark and that the sleigh carried two men and one woman. It was going too quickly to get a good look at the occupants, but tracks in the snow suggested it had veered mighty close to the well. It might have even stopped there. Immediately, suspicion fell on Levi Weeks, and soon the young country would be riveted by one of the most historic murder trials in American history. Officials, of course, looked first to Levi Weeks. How could they not? The very night Elma was under the impression she was going to marry this guy, she ends up at the bottom of a well. What are the odds of that? Of course, the last person to see her alive was Levi Weeks, and so he was essentially the only serious suspect that they questioned. And he, was, he wasn't arrested until sometime in March because his brother was well-connected. Once Elma's body was found, of course, suspicion fell on Levi. The boarding house crew had conflicting views of the couple's relationship. Catherine said that she trusted Levi. She had taken off her shoes a couple of times so she could sneakily tiptoe down the hall and peek at them together in Alma's room. And he seemed respectful and genuinely concerned for Alma. Catherine was comfortable enough with this relationship that she didn't think twice about leaving them, largely alone for six weeks as she visited family in the country. Catherine stayed away those whole six weeks, and when she got back, it seemed like their relationship had grown deeper. She said, quote, After my return, I paid strict attention to their conduct and saw an appearance of mutual attachment, but nothing improper, end quote. Now, others in the house had a different view of the relationship. They said Levi seemed to pay as much attention to Hope, Catherine's sister, as he paid to Alma. And as for chaste intentions, one boarder said he spotted Levi leaving Alma's room late at night wearing only a nightshirt. Sex out of wedlock might have been more universally frowned upon a couple of centuries ago than it is today, but it doesn't seem like it was much less prevalent. Here's what Catherine said happened on the fateful day of December 22nd. Her sister Hope had left the boarding house for a meeting, and Levi had left to visit his brother Ezra's house. Catherine knew of the alleged wedding plans, but made a point to act completely normal so that Levi would know Elma had blabbed. It was a pretty Melrose Place situation. Not long after he'd left, Levi returned, saying that he had fallen and hurt his knee, which made Catherine wonder if that meant the two wouldn't get hitched that night after all. Another boarder was around named Sylvanus Russell. He didn't know the big plans and innocently said, Levi, you won't be able to go out anymore today. And Levi replied that he was determined to go out that night. Alma dressed his knee, which turned out wasn't terribly hurt. 
and then she and Levi went upstairs to his room. Next thing Catherine noticed, Levi's apprentice, who shared his room with him, came downstairs to do something, and Catherine realized, oh, they sent the third wheel away for some alone time. Sometime after noon, Alma came back downstairs and seemed pleased. Levi soon appeared, and he too looked awfully happy. To Catherine, this all made sense. These were two lovebirds planning to get married that very night. Of course they'd steal alone time and be all lovey-dovey and smiley. It's what people do when they're young and in love. Levi left again, and Alma stood by the door, seeming antsy for him to come back. He did, right around the time Catherine noticed the clock strike 8 p.m. Over the next few minutes, things moved quickly. Alma finished getting dressed for her wedding, borrowed the muff from the neighbor, and suddenly looked pale and nervous just as she was about to leave. Catherine noticed this and figured it was wedding jitters, so she told her not to be scared. Then Catherine went to her own room until she heard some walking on the stairs. She tried to hear what was being said, but couldn't, and then she heard the front door open and close. It seemed to her Alma and Levi had left. About 10 p.m., Levi came back. Catherine said he looked pale and agitated. He asked if Hope was home first. She wasn't, and then asked for Alma. Catherine, still trying to play dumb about the whole wedding thing, said, no, Alma's not here either. Levi said he was surprised she'd be out so late. Catherine was confused and a little concerned. But you know how sometimes you feel something ominous in your gut, but your brain's like, don't be stupid, nothing's wrong, you're getting worked up for nothing? That's basically what Catherine did. It wasn't until the next afternoon that her brain started agreeing with her gut. Hope, who had come back, was also worried. She confronted Levi, screaming at him, saying, Where's Alma? I know thee knows. Tell me. She said she knew he and Alma were going out together last night. Levi seemed shocked. Why, if she had went with me, she would have returned with me, he said. It wasn't long before Catherine confronted him, too. She told him that Alma had confided in her their wedding plans. According to her, he turned pale and started trembling. He clasped his hands together and cried out, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. I'm undone forever unless she appears to clear me. My existence will only be a burden. After he composed himself, he said, No, I'd never marry someone without my brother's blessing. Days passed. Then, on December 26th, Levi walked in and found Catherine upset. He took off his hat and sat with her and said, Give her up. She is gone, no doubt, and all our grieving would do no good. Catherine was shocked. What do you think happened to her, she asked. He said, quote, It's my firm belief she's now in eternity. It certainly is. Therefore, make yourself easy, for your mourning will never bring her back. End quote. Funny thing, though, these assurances that Alma was dead weren't very comforting to Catherine. In fact, they were pretty upsetting. She pressed some more. Levi said he had heard Alma once say that she wished she never had an existence, or in today's speak, I wish I were dead. Before Alma's body had even been found, her boyfriend was sure she had killed herself. After she had been pulled from the well, Alma's body was put on public display for a few days in the street in front of the ring's boarding house. People walking by were shocked at the sight of her battered body. Lots of later 
discussions of it have brought that into question that that they were fanning the flames and that they were deliberately trying to incite public opinion. It helped fuel public outrage, not to mention interest in the case. It was highly publicized. It was very political, Uh, political because there was kind of a a crisis at the time of split in New York between the Federalists, which represented kind of the, you know, the old wealthy class that were starting to become pro-British in terms of the view of the Napoleonic Wars, and the Democrat Republicans who represented sort of the up-and-coming class, the middle class, uh, the working class. Uh, and so what you really saw is that, uh, that that Levi Weeks himself wasn't wealthy, but his brother, Ezra Weeks, was a very famous wealthy man. The defense kind of represented the Federalists, and the prosecution represented this poor working woman who had been murdered in the night. Now, this case would end up being the first recorded homicide trial in the country's history. Now, back in 1800, trials weren't much like they are today. First off, they came fast. Elma's body was discovered in January. The trial against Levi Weeks was just three months later, in April. Second, defendants back then didn't really retain lawyers to represent them in court. English criminal procedure, which is what the colonists transplanted here, was designed differently. Often, the victim of the crime was the prosecutor, or the person arguing the case to a court, and the defendant would defend himself. As barrister William Hawkins wrote in a treatise of Pleas of the Crown, any defendant who's innocent should be able to represent themselves. He wrote, quote, it requires no manner of skill to make a plain and honest defense, end quote. Now, in this case, Elma wasn't alive to serve as prosecutor, so lawyers argued her side instead. And Levi didn't see fit to represent himself either. And he was defended by Henry Brockholz Livingston, who later became uh, a Supreme Court justice, Aaron Burr, who was very shortly going to become the vice president of the United States, and Alexander Hamilton, who at that point was no longer Secretary of the Treasury, and it was kind of the nadir of his public life, and this was still a few years before his duel with Burr. So they all three came together to defend Levi. His brother Ezra had had some high-profile clients in the past, and one just so happened to be Alexander Hamilton. Ezra had been building a house for him, a mansion, really. And looking back at financial documents, Josh Geiger said it's not hard to imagine why the main author of the Federalist Papers, a founding father, the first secretary of treasury, would agree to be a defense lawyer back when defense lawyers weren't even a thing. I actually have a uh, an account with Ezra Weeks from Hamilton that was in 1802, and he, he still owed... $396.83, which he apparently paid on July 16th, 1802, uh, which was, of course, several years after this. It was all about the Benjamins. It's not clear if Aaron Burr had been one of Ezra's clients as well, but it was 1800, which is the year Burr ran for president and lost to Jefferson. When the country was first formed, the number two would automatically be vice president, though that stopped in 1804. Knowing what we know now, the idea of Burr and Hamilton working together is entertaining. Gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with me. Are you aware that we're making history? This is the first murder trial of our brand new nation, the Liberty Mahanda Liberation. I intend to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt with my assistant 
Unless you've been down a well for the past few years, you probably recognize that as part of Lin-Manuel Miranda's amazing musical Hamilton. I'd listened to the original cast recording dozens of times and seen the show once in person, but I never caught this lyric. So if you missed it, here it is again. With my assistant counsel, co-counsel Hamilton, sit down. A client every week is innocent. Call your first witness. That was all you had to say. Miranda, of course, took some liberties translating Hamilton's life into a record-breaking Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, but he captures the spirit of Hamilton's complicated relationship with Aaron Burr pretty well. The two men had a lot in common. They were both orphans who had parlayed their inherent smarts into political careers, but they also rubbed each other the wrong way enough that encounters often devolved into headbutting sessions. But they were both lawyers, And in this case, they were on the same side. They weren't alone either. The third in a trio of defense lawyers was Henry Brockholz Livingston, who had fought in the Revolutionary War and served on the staff of General Philip Schuyler. Does the name Schuyler sound familiar? The general was their father. These three were basically celebrities everywhere they went, but especially in New York. Hamilton had co-founded the company that built the Manhattan well in which Elma's body was found, and Burr had built the road leading up to it. Those two with Livingston were basically this country's first legal dream team. When people ask, why was Burr on this trial team? I mean, why was Burr participating? He's the one you kind of don't expect to be there. Uh, You kind of get two stories. One is that he might have had some relationship with Ezra Weeks, uh, that they were all related to Ezra Weeks in different ways, might have had a financial uh, position with him. But one is that Burr was simply so seeking attention at the time that he couldn't not be involved in the trial of the century. And that so he sort of uh, put himself in there. We know a lot about this trial because... This was the first murder trial for which we have transcripts in the United States after the Constitution. Levi didn't argue on his own behalf, as defendants usually did back then. Instead, this dream team focused all their energy on arguing that prosecutors had a weak case. Now, at first, that might sound nuts. Plenty of cases are circumstantial, and I've seen guilty verdicts come from far weaker evidence than this. And Catherine's testimony isn't even all prosecutors had. A different Catherine, this one called Catherine Lyon, said she had run into Elma a little after 8 p.m., then half an hour later heard Elma scream, Murder! Murder! Oh, save me! Susanna Broad, an elderly neighbor of Ezra's, said that she heard the gate to his lumberyard fly open around 8 p.m. It made a rumbling noise, but had no bells on it, she said. It wasn't long before she heard it return. The defense said all of that was nonsense. Bit by bit, they attacked the evidence. Catherine thought she heard Elma and Levi leave together, but she didn't actually see them leave. She just assumed that's who she heard because she had only moments earlier seen the two readying to leave together. The people who said they saw a single sleigh barreling through the night didn't get a good look at the occupants. They couldn't. It was dark outside. They couldn't even say what color the horse was, aside from that it was dark. And Susanna Broad stumbled on cross-examination when she said she thought she'd heard that bell-less sleigh after Christmas, not before. 
Demas Mead, one of Ezra's apprentices, acknowledged that his boss had a single sleigh that was pulled by a dark-colored horse, but he also said he took care of that sleigh and horse, and he remembered locking them up that night, and he had the only key to free them. Neighbor Joseph Watkins said that while Catherine was away in the country, he heard some loud noises coming from what he knew to be Elma's room, noises that sounded like a bed getting a workout. He could hear a man's voice and a woman's. The woman's was too quiet to hear, but the man's was not Levi's. He thought it was Elias, Catherine's husband, just to up the Melrose Place analogy. Watkins said disapprovingly to his wife, that girl will be ruined. He didn't hear these bed noises just once either. He said he heard them up to 14 times. No one outside of the Watkins home reported seeing anything untoward between Elias and Elma. And it's worth noting that Elias actually asked his wife to come home early from the country because he was lonely. But Catherine, apparently needing a break from the day-to-day grind, opted to stay away the whole six weeks. After they impugned her character, the lawyer said Alma might have thrown herself into the well. If she had thought that she and Levi were getting married, yet this was news to Levi, maybe that upset her enough that she died by suicide. To support that theory, they called witnesses to ask about their impressions of her state of mind. Some of the boarders took issue with Catherine's description, which was that Alma was generally cheerful, sunny. The boarders called by the defense said, actually, Alma was always pretty down. Or as Timothy Crane testified, she seemed of a melancholy make. Sometimes she would pass a joke, but it seemed forced. Boarders also said that Alma might have had a drug problem. They pointed to her fondness for a drug called laudanum. Laudanum is a type of opium drug made into an alcohol solution. Like all opiates, laudanum is highly addictive. That's from a PSA-styled video posted by the DrugRehabCenter.com. Individuals who take opiates, such as laudanum, usually report feelings of euphoria and well-being while high on these types of drugs. Laudanum was a diluted form of opium used back in the day as a painkiller and cough suppressant. It also helped people with diarrhea, which once upon a time could be really dangerous. And back before there were fancy water filtration systems, People actually died of diarrhea. For them, laudanum was the heavens parting. Alma was fond of it and had been taking it recently because of the sickness that Levi helped nurse her through. By this time, people were figuring out that the drug was pretty serious business. So when Alma asked her doctor for some during her illness, he said sure, so long as she let him drop it in her mouth himself. She consented, and he gave her enough drops of the stuff that Catherine and Elias were surprised. Then Elma said if she had a vial of the drug, she'd take it all. They attacked her character. They implied that she had relationships with other people. Uh, They pressed a kind of sketchy alibi for Levi Weeks. They did enough just to raise doubt in the minds of the jury. And, and that is something that you know, typically you would expect that today. I mean, that's, that's the OJ trial, essentially, right? Levi, on the other hand, was described as trustworthy, industrious, reputable, amiable, engaging. The description of Levi Weeks says, oh, he, he was just so innocent and he didn't look like he was capable of lying, which, I mean, of course, today, I don't think anyone would take he looks innocent as a good argument in court. 
His brother took the stand and swore Levi had been with him until 8, then away for just 15 minutes, and then with him again until nearly 10. It's soon after that that Catherine said he returned to the boarding house. So if Ezra was being truthful, there really was only a 15-minute window for Levi to go to the boarding house, meet up with Alma, return to take Ezra's sled, then rush to the Manhattan well, kill Alma, toss her into the stony abyss, return the sled, and walk back inside the boarding house. Of course, that's if Ezra was being truthful. I'm always a little skeptical of alibis supplied by family members. There was a, when William Coleman, who produced what is generally considered the best transcript of the trial, when he produced his transcript, he said, I'm not going to comment on the guilt or innocence of any party. Ezra, the Levi's brother, tried to, first of all, pay him to get him to say something good about Levi. And when he refused to do that, he offered to buy the, the whole printing of the transcript. And William Coleman told him, basically, you can't buy me, which leads to the suspicion that, you know, some of these people who changed their minds or something like that might have had their hands greased a little bit by, by Ezra, who was looking out for, the, for his brother and for his family. I mean, if a man's willing to pay off a court reporter, is it that big of a stretch to think he might lie about an alibi or pay other witnesses to lie for him? The prosecutor was another high-profile man named Codwalder David Colden, who made choices that, by today's standards, might actually constitute ineffective counsel. The prosecutor did not do a great job questioning some of the some of the inconsistencies. It's hard to say if that was because he wasn't good at his job or because, at the time, lawyers didn't really do criminal trials. Colden called witnesses to the stand who literally said, I don't know anything about this case. He sat by as the defense rattled his other witnesses, making them waver on what they saw and when they saw it. The doctors who initially saw the body, those involved in the coroner's inquest that ruled the death a murder, backtracked and said, you know, she probably killed herself after all. And they testified for the defense. So Colden called on a couple of other doctors who made terrible witnesses. One was a dentist, and the other had only seen Elma's body while it was displayed in the street. Lance Geiger said, it all makes Colden look like a flunky, but in reality... He would eventually become uh, mayor of New York City. I mean, he, this, is, this is no slouch. But the whole idea of how you prosecute a case was here somewhat behind the whole idea of how you defend a case. And he certainly seemed to have been outclassed by the dream team of the defense team. And so there's things that, especially when you look at now, you would say, how could he possibly not have asked that question? How could he possibly not have pressed when they had inconsistencies? He just didn't push them. I'd mentioned trials this old differ from trials today. And here's another example how. The trial itself went on for two days, which at the time was considered a very, very long trial. Complicated trials with high-profile defendants and higher-profile lawyers can take weeks nowadays, months even. In 1800, that was absolutely unheard of. In fact, most cases were presented and resolved in one day. This case is the first recorded to span two days. Jurors actually got so sleepy around 1.30 a.m. the first day of testimony that they slept in the courthouse, then roused around 10 a.m. to continue testimony. The second day of testimony lasted until nearly 2.30 a.m. That's in part because of the defense strategy. 
Not only would they have character witnesses talk about how great Levi was, but they'd also throw in some potential alternate suspects. Elias, of course. Alma herself. And then there was a man named Croucher. Richard David Croucher had been in the country about 15 months. He was one of those dreaded immigrants you hear so much about these days. But even worse, because he came from England, which didn't make him a fan favorite in a room full of Revolutionary War vets. Richard Croucher had, from the very beginning, essentially tried to be out there controlling the the voice. So he was he was marketing against Levi, essentially. He was passing handbills and doing gossip. And the defense tried to suggest that he could be the killer, but he had a pretty solid alibi. Croucher must have had an interesting face because... He's described again and again as having villainous features. Apparently he was an unattractive man. And they kind of implied that because of his appearance, then he must be a villain and could possibly have been the murderer. He was the only boarder to testify against Levi Weeks. In fact, it was he who said he'd seen Levi sneaking out of Elma's room wearing just a nightshirt. As soon as Elma went missing... Croucher seems to have been disturbingly eager to implicate Levi. By some accounts, he passed out pamphlets and placed newspaper ads declaring Levi guilty, though Croucher denied doing that on the stand. He didn't deny, though, that he had told one woman he could have saved Alma if he had just taken his usual route a little earlier that day. See, he went past the Manhattan well almost every day, he explained, and he had that fateful Sunday as well. He just hadn't been there at the right time. Side note, sometimes it can raise eyebrows when you casually put yourself at the scene of a gruesome crime. Croucher seemed so determined to pin murder on Levi that on cross-examination, Aaron Burr bellowed, And where, sir, were you on the night of the 22nd of December, 1799? Croucher offered an alibi. He was dining with a rich lady on Bowery Lane who'd invited friends over because it was her son's birthday. He admitted he'd gone in and out, but the rich lady testified that he was definitely with her between 8 and 11 p.m. If Burr had hoped for a Perry Mason moment 160 years before Perry Mason debuted, he didn't quite get it. But the many proffered possibilities of alternate suspects apparently did do the trick. After testimony from 75 witnesses over the two-day trial, the jury stepped out at 2.26 a.m. At 2.30 a.m., they returned with their verdict. It took them four minutes to decide Levi was not guilty. Livingston, Hamilton, and Burr had done it. They'd nailed an acquittal for their client. Catherine Ring was devastated. She reportedly approached Hamilton and said, quote, if thee dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven, end quote. As it turned out, none of the key players in this case seem to have fared well in the aftermath. For starters, Elias Ring appears to have run out of money around 1820 because he's listed as insolvent in New York's Evening Post. Later, one of the justices who weighed the case was lost at sea. Burr, of course, fatally shot Hamilton in an illegal duel in 1804, just four years after they probably tossed back a pint together to celebrate the win in this case. While Burr escaped prosecution, 
He spent the rest of his life an outcast. If Levi Weeks had hoped that an acquittal meant public exoneration, that wasn't the case. The popular sentiment was that he was the only person with motive to kill Alma Sands, so he must have done it. And he'd gotten away with it because his rich brother was able to buy his freedom by not just hiring fancy lawyers, but straight up changing the process that most accused people had faced under English-turned-American law. Levi moved first to Massachusetts, where he'd been born. And then, in 1909, he moved to Mississippi, where he married a woman named Anne Greenleaf and had three children. There, he earned a reputation as a noted architect. On September 20th, 1819, he died at age 43 of yellow fever, leaving behind his pregnant wife and three children. One of the children died at age five on November 5th, less than four weeks from the date Anne gave birth to Levi's last child, a boy she named Levi Hinckley. Ezra stayed in New York and stayed rich. I'll always be a bit curious if the wrong brother was blamed in this case. Levi, after all, implied that Ezra didn't approve of Elma as his wife, and he was high-profile enough that he knew some of the country's founding fathers. Looking at the trial transcript, it appears he had the judge on his side, too. Could it be that that's why Levi was so sure Elma was dead, so matter-of-fact about it before her body was even found? I mentioned this thought to the history guy. If you want to go farther into conspiracy theories, all of these guys uh, were members of the New York Masonic Lodge. And Ezra Weeks, uh, they were all Masons together there in New York City. Ezra Weeks, the brother whose approval Levi so desperately wanted if he were to get married to Alma, appeared never to have been a suspect at all. People just took the rich man's word for it that he was home with his brother when the crime occurred. The most interesting postscript to me might be Croucher's. Even though Burr and Hamilton both later told stories about how they had outed Croucher as the real killer during the trial, they both took credit for that unveiling too, which was described dramatically as being by candlelight in the packed courtroom. Alma Sands' murder to this day is an unsolved mystery. The disturbing thing is that they never seem to look for any other possible suspect and never found one. Croucher might have been worth pursuing. Not all of this is reported in most of the official counts of this case, but digging through old newspapers, I found some tidbits. Just three months after Levi Weeks was acquitted, Croucher was accused of raping a 14-year-old girl. A story in the Lancaster Intelligencer read, quote, The prisoner is a man of about 40, with every mark on his face of a crafty, unprincipled villain. The girl is a child of scarce 14 years, she told her story with artlessness and in tears. The horror of the diabolical scene seemed still fresh in her memory. The criminal had no other apology than that she was a whore, end quote. He was convicted July 8, 1800, and sentenced to life in prison. Three years later, the Evening Post wrote that he had been pardoned by George Clinton, New York's first governor who would later become the United States' fourth vice president. Clinton thought Croucher was mentally ill, and because of that, he thought his punishment was too severe. Whatever was the cause of Croucher's illegal deeds, doesn't seem he got it under control after being pardoned. According to the Evening Post, after he was released, Croucher robbed a man. 
He fled back to England where, according to a book written by one of Hamilton's sons in 1865, Croucher committed another heinous crime and was executed. One last note. As for the Manhattan Well at the center of this mystery, it had long ago been buried over. But in 1980, a property owner uncovered it in his basement. He made a point to preserve it. And today, you can see it displayed in the basement of the Cause Clothing Store in Soho. The folk song you heard was called The Soul of Alma Sands by Julian Davis and The Situation. To research this case, I used trial transcripts released by the court reporter in 1800, as well as contemporary newspapers and also retrospectives written at various points over the years, including a 1929 article in Vanity Fair. The book, The Trial of Levi Weeks, or The Manhattan Well Mystery, by Estelle Fox Klieger, was helpful, as was Scott Slowinski's A Tale of Two Murders. Special thanks to Lance Geiger, a.k.a. the History Guy on YouTube, and his researcher, Josh Geiger. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>